Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. As we're sort of in Lent and we're walking towards the cross, um, it's kind of like every year is an offer to pilgrimage again around the cross. And T.S. Eliot talks about the cross as the still point of a turning world that the cross of Jesus Christ stands through all time and all history as a still point around which all of our lives and all of history and everything rotates. And so every year, usually around Easter, we, in our services, we gather to just look at the cross from different perspectives, to, to consider all the different ways this this definitive act of God in the world is the redemption of all, all things in all time. And so over the years, we've looked at lots of different perspectives. We've looked at different atonement theories. We've looked at just interesting things To Most of us have just heard a fairly one-dimensional narrative of what the cross means. But I think that the cross is the multifaceted diamond of all of history that can be endlessly looked at in wonder with new things to to learn and to consider and so last week last Sunday afternoon I preached and I preached a perspective on the cross uh, that was bouncing out of a, um, a quote that Plato you know the Greek philosopher Plato he wrote about 300 years before the life of Jesus where essentially he said If ever a truly righteous man was ever to walk the earth, we, as in humankind, we would deem him unrighteous. And then we would torture and crucify him. And he would maintain his righteousness to the end and we would maintain his unrighteousness and kill him. So that was like a a philosophy of Plato that he just recognised in humanities, something in humanity tends towards destruction and self-destruction. And so last week, last Sunday afternoon, I just looked at a way that we can look at what Jesus did on the cross and recognise our human tendencies to basically stuff it up. That given half a chance, despite our best efforts and intentions, we're just going to make a hash of things. All parents know this. Despite your best parenting efforts, your children will end up in therapy. Um, It doesn't matter, you know, even like, that's, you know, a funny way, but it's the same kind of thing when we look at the cross. Despite our best efforts, just this recognising this human tendency towards messing things up. We then looked at how we can hold that knowledge alongside the knowledge that we're not totally depraved, despairing worms that God hates, but we're actually, you know, the beloved of God and that we can actually hold those two things together. Our belovedness, that, that our very being has the divine fingerprints on our soul and our ability to stuff it up. And the cross is the picture of what we do to God and what, how God recycles it back in love and redemption to us. So I, uh, that was the perspective I brought last Sunday. 
Um, when we were planning this month, I asked Becca if she would preach a message um, on the cross, bouncing out of um, James Cone's um, profound book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Now, I've never read that book, but I hear a lot of people talk about it, and I thought, I think this will be a really interesting perspective for us to consider the cross. But I made that decision in utter ignorance, <laughs> and Becca has read the book and sat with the book and has really done the digesting work of something that's actually quite... I don't even know what word I want to put on it. Full-on, horrific. And she's going to recycle that to us today in something that's probably digestible for a Sunday morning. But I am, I'm claiming my role in Sunday morning, that Becca is just being obedient to her pastor. <laughs> and, um, but it is, I think this is an important perspective for us to sit with. Um, so this morning might be slightly more uncomfortable for us, and that's okay. And then next Sunday afternoon in church, Oren's going to be look at, looking at the atonement theory of, um, I've forgotten what it's called, moral influence. So moral influence atonement theory is one of the more classically agreed upon atonement theories of the cross. So that, that's sort of what we're doing across the month of March is we're looking again, spinning around that still point, looking at the cross. And so, welcome Becca. <laughs> I was going to straight away blame Kara, so I'm glad that she, which I often do actually, I often say when I'm speaking, this was Kara's idea, just so everyone realizes. Um, yeah, I do want to acknowledge at the beginning that this message is not, not comfortable. That book, the book was very, very difficult for me to read as an American, very difficult. Um, and so this is not going to be easy, and I, we want to be a trauma-informed space. So we want, I don't know how the stories that I'm going to share intersects with your own pain and your family's story. And it's a question that actually we need to ask and, and grapple with. Um, so I do want to encourage you to take care of yourself as you're here. I don't want this to be forced upon anyone. Um, I actually want you to choose to listen to what you can listen to and choose to engage in the ways you can. Um, and we will do a, like a body-based practice um, towards the end that I think will hopefully help us. Um, but keep yourself grounded um, and present as, yeah, as we look at this, this perspective of the cross. Um, I do want to acknowledge, I know Luke already has acknowledged, but I want to acknowledge that I'm standing here with a microphone speaking to you on land that has been stolen. Um, from the Wadi Wadi people, that this land is Darwal country, it always has been, it always will be. Um, and on Aboriginal Sunday, a few, a few weeks ago, we heard Auntie Jean Phillips in a little, short little interview mention that w white churches rarely talk about whose land they're meeting on. Um, and I also want to give a cultural warning for any Aboriginal people, or Torres Strait Islander people that may be here. That I'm going to mention people and even have some photos of people that are deceased. I just want to offer that warning. Um, yeah, so like Carol mentioned, 
um, we're looking at the cross of Jesus from some different vantage points. And she asked me to read this book, which I had also heard referenced many, many times and probably should have already read in my life. Um, but I hadn't. It's written by James Cohn, who ended up becoming a very prolific, amazing professor um, of, the, of the Bible. And he launched the conversation around what is known as black liberation theology. And he lived from 1938, so if you can kind of think of that date, and he only died actually in 2018. Uh, James Cohn grew up as a black boy and a black man in Arkansas, so I know I'm married to a Canadian. I know that not everyone is super familiar with um, American geography. I really love that. What did you just ask me? Chris asked me the other day, where is this place or something? Baltimore. <laughs> I don't think I even told him. I was just like, I just love that you don't know where that is. So it's good. Trust me, we learned nothing about the rest of the world in my education. So it just makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but Arkansas is in the south of the United States. I have never been there. I, I don't know. What did you say? Okay. Famous TV show. Um, so he grew up in, that's the, that's the South, okay? So um, think Southern accents. He grew up in a town that was racially segregated. And so he grew up in, like, he was born in 1938, so thinking 40s and 50s. Um, and he talks about in this book waiting for his dad to come home every night from work as a little boy, what, knowing what time his dad should get home, watching out the window for, for the truck lights, hoping that it's his dad. And when his dad was late, for whatever reason, he felt terrified that maybe his dad had been caught up in mob violence, which was very common. And it was known as lynching. Um, and so I don't know how familiar Ameri um, Australians are with the practice of lynching in the United States, but this kind of began in around 1860. Um, and went on all the way up to 1981, actually. Um, and this is where particularly black men, black boys, and black women, sometimes pregnant women as well, were murdered in various gruesome ways that I'm not going to describe. Um, murdered by a mob of white people. And often their bodies were hung from a tree, or a post or a bridge and left there for days in order to terrorize all of the other black people in the community. And large, this wasn't just a few people doing this, large groups of white people would actually show up and watch. They would picnic, they would take photos, they would make postcards they would bring their children to see. And you could Google image search pictures of, of, of these people. And a lot of them are still alive today in America. And some of them have positions of power in America, which is part of our problem. Um, this terrorized black families. Uh, created immense amounts of trauma, as you can imagine, overwhelming fear. Usually lynching victims were accused, of a, uh, were accused of some kind of crime, but 
usually they were actually just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong color skin. James Cone writes, nothing was more detested by whites than the idea that blacks were equal to them. A law to stop the lynchings and to stop white mob violence was proposed in 1918, okay? And it did not make it through the Senate at that point, 1918. There were more attempts until it was finally passed and finally became law. Does anyone have a guess of what year an anti-lynching law came, was actually signed? 90s? Anyone else? 70s? It was last year. President Joe Biden signed it in 2022. How much did I learn about lynching in my small town school in Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania is in the north. Um, it's in the north, and you kind of feel like, oh, you're, you're better than the south. But Pennsylvania is actually home, what I'd heard when I lived there, home to the most hate groups in the United States, including the KKK. Um, how much did I learn in my public history, public school history lessons? Very, very little. It was covered briefly when we talked about the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but I wasn't taught that over 5,000 men, women, and children were lynched. 5,000 by mob, white mob violence. Not only in the South, but all over the country, including California and New York. I actually learned much more about the Holocaust, uh, which is also very important to learn about, but I learned much more about the Holocaust than I did the history of enslavement and violence um, in my own country. And there's a quote um, by W. Fitzhugh Brundage that says, perhaps nothing about the history of mob violence in the United States is more surprising then how quickly an understanding of the full horror of lynching has receded from the nation's collective historical memory. People that lynched people are still alive today. People that watch are still alive today, and yet we've forgotten. We've collectively forgotten about it. Um, in Cohen's book, there were many, many stories of black Americans who were lynched at the hands of white mobs. There's names, dates, places, family members who were left behind. I'm only going to tell you one story because it's a very famous one. It's a very important one. I didn't learn this in school. Um, but it's the story of Emmett Till. I can put up his picture there. He was 14 years old in 1955. I think he was in Mississippi, another southern state. Uh, he was accused of offending a white woman named Carolyn Bryant. Um, I want to mention both that C Carolyn Bryant is still alive today and also that she actually made it all up. Not that that, of course, is a reason to ever kill anyone, let alone a 14-year-old boy, but she, ma she made it up. A group of men kidnapped him, tortured him, and killed him. Um, his body was found three days later. The men were actually um, arrested, and they were actually given a trial. 
and they were found not guilty by an all-white jury. Emmett's mother, so we were talking about awake, um, Emmett's mother actually left his casket open for the world to see her boy and what white mob violence had done to her boy. Three months, this is, I didn't realize this until I was reading this book, but three months later, a woman named Rosa Parks decided she was not going to move to the back of the bus. And that Montgomery bus boycott um, ignited the civil rights movement, which has changed the trajectory of race relations in the United States. What does the lynching of African Americans in the US have to do with Jesus? Well, it really depended on who you asked. Black musicians, black poets, black and black artists created endless works that connected the way that Jesus was murdered by the powers, encouraged by a mob of onlookers, that connected that to the torture and deaths of their people. Black Christians found comfort and solace in their experience of state-sponsored violence, knowing that they didn't suffer alone. They cherished the cross and experienced it as a place where God, creator God, was in solidarity with them, deeply understanding their pain and their loss. They placed their trust in God's resurrection power that one day all lynchings would end and every tear would be wiped from their eyes. James Cone has a quote, a symbol of death and defeat, God turned it into a sign of liberation and new life. The cross is the most empowering symbol of God's loving solidarity with the least of these, the unwanted in society who suffer daily from great injustice. And this is the heart of black liberation theology. Faith in God gave black Americans courage to face the trauma of modern lynching and the experience of lynchings in their community also deeply challenged their faith in God. And that sounds so much like Jesus, who was resolute, his focused on going to Jerusalem to confront the political and religious powers, knowing that he would be executed, and yet he too would question God's presence with him in the depths of his suffering. This is a quote um, from James Cone. Just as Jesus cried from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Many lynch victims made similar outbursts of despair to God before they took their last breath, hoping for divine intervention that did not come. And it did not come to Jesus either on the cross. Um, black cultural critic Stanley Crouch calls that line of Jesus perhaps the greatest blues line ever written. Black Christians knew a Jesus who suffered with them in solidarity, gave them courage to face extreme fear and darkness with courage and hope. Dr. Drew Hart has a book on racism in the church, which I highly recommend you read. Um, he writes about a concept called the, it's a big word, the epistemological privilege of the poor or the epistemological privilege of the oppressed. So this means that people who are coming from marginalized groups, because they were situated at the bottom of society, 
that they can see the world for what it really is like. And because the creator God, when joining us here on earth, came in the body, in the brown body of a Palestinian Jew, living under the brutal occupation of the Roman Empire, other people on our planet who have been colonized and brutalized likely understand God and God's work in the world better than those of us who are situated at the top. What were white Christians doing at the time of these lynchings? Did white Christians, white pastors, white theologians, did they speak out against and condemn the lynchings and condemn the segregation? Any guesses? They really did not. Did they see the image of Jesus and the black bodies hanging from the trees after being met with mob violence? Did they connect the crucifixion of their Lord with the crucifixion of their neighbors? They did not. They, they didn't see themselves in the mob that handed Jesus over to the powers, nor in the powers themselves. White Christians kept Jesus comfortable so that their lives didn't have to change. James Cone says that for white Christians to stay comfortable, they needed white theologians to interpret the gospel in a way that would not require them to acknowledge white supremacy as one of America's great sins. White Christians could not see what the gospel had. They couldn't see what the gospel had to do with segregation and lynching. Nobody preached a sermon on it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody condemned it. That was shocking to me. There was nobody. White Christians were calm and dispassionate in the face of the suffering of their neighbors and their Christian brothers and sisters. The churches were full, though. The churches were actually having revival at this point. And sins were being confessed, but not the sin of white supremacy and violence. I wonder about my own family at this time of, in my country's history. On my mother's side, I'm Shawnee, which is uh, a First Nations people group that inhabited the Ohio River Valley. My mom grew up in Ohio. Um, I also have on that side um, European ancestry. On my dad's side is white and with mixed European ancestry. Both of my grandfathers were pastors, as is my dad. Did my Shawnee grandfather recognize the suffering of our people and the story of our people in the suffering of African Americans at that time? What about my white grandfather? Did he ever imagine that Jesus was also hanging on that lynching tree? These are uncomfortable questions for me to ask. Ida B. Wells, I don't know if you know that name, but we need to know this name. She was the courageous black woman who led the anti-lynching movement. Um, And she says that, quote, our American Christians, so she's talking about the churches and the revivals that are happening, they're too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save 
the black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. The silence of white Christians, white pastors, white theologians was deafening. And it was a silence that was heard and deeply felt. So the bad news for us here on Darwell Country, which I'm hoping some of us can see this coming, is that the same seeds of colonization and white supremacy that were planted on Turtle Island and led to that kind of treatment of black and indigenous people. Um, those seeds were planted here as well. And they have taken hold. Um, Newcastle University, so I have a slide, has developed a killing map. So this is where it gets really uncomfortable for us here. I, I, you, it's likely you've seen this or heard, heard about this. I, I recommend having a, having a look at it. Um, so these are all of the massacres committed during the frontier wars. So calling it the frontier wars is going against the myth that Australia as the nation it is now is established peace, peacefully. 97% of the deaths in the frontier wars were Aboriginal people, Aboriginal men, women, and children. And as the years went on, the massacres actually became more violent, more systematic, and more calculated, um, committed by individuals and groups, but also by the government, all in the name of Jesus. Um, and then do you want to go to the next slide? Those represent where a white person or a colonizer was killed by an Aboriginal person. Because I think there's also the, the myth that maybe there was equal fighting happening. Um, so can you go back to the slide before that? I really recommend having to look at these maps. Um, where were your grandparents during this time? Did they see the suffering of their Lord in the suffering of Aboriginal people? The tactics have changed today, but the genocide continues through police brutality, deaths of Aboriginal people in custody, Aboriginal, people be, Aboriginal children being taken from their parents, not only in the stolen generation, but that continues today. They're taken at much higher and faster rates than white children are taken. Ten-year-old Aboriginal boys are placed in detention centers. Land continues to be exploited for high profits for mining companies and the government. And from the beginning of colonization, Aboriginal people have known. They have called for justice. They have called for righteousness. They have called for treaty. They have called for truth-telling. We, we just haven't listened. Just last year in October, this is a very sad story. An Aboriginal boy named Cassius Turvey was walking home from school. He was 15 years old. He was, lived in Perth, in a suburb of Perth. And he and his friends were actually attacked by a couple of young white men. Cassius died 10 days later from his injuries. 
Some has, have referred to this as a modern-day lynching. Cassius's mother had only recently lost her husband, and now she had to bury her only child. What will history say about us? What will history say about Central Church in 25 years or 50 years or 100 years? Will history say that we lacked the theological imagination needed to connect Jesus to other crucified peoples in our midst? Will history say that we, we didn't know how the cross of Jesus related to Aboriginal people or LGBTQ people or refugees around the world or even the land we live on, creation care. We cannot change what our white ancestors have done or have not done. We can't change that. But we can change what we do right now in the present and whether we want to continue to eat the bad fruit of our ancestors' sins. And it's poisoning us. Um, another James Cone quote, the real scandal of the gospel is this. Humanity's salvation is revealed in the cross of the condemned criminal Jesus. And humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. What if we believe that to be true? What if we believe that our salvation and healing is tied up with the most marginalized people in our community? How would we pray? Where would we give our money and how much of it? Who would be at our table? Who would be welcome here with us in our space? And lastly, what does our picture of Jesus look like? James, Cone, James Cone's book was full of language of white Christ and black Christ. White Christians saw white Christ. And black Christians saw black Christ. Does Jesus look like us? Or does he look like the ones who experience us as their enemies? I found some really beautiful depictions of Jesus. Um, and there's actually this series of cards you can buy. Um, do you want to go to the next? Yeah. This is um, John Dunn, an Okola Jabage man from far north Queensland. He was caught up in the stolen generation, and he didn't find his family until he was in his 40s. So it was out of that experience of the world, out of that place of pain and loss, and which is his own crucifixion, he depicted Jesus' suffering in a way that connects to the beauty and the pain of Aboriginal peoples. Aboriginal poet Jack David writes, but I think of a people crucified, the real Australian story. Aboriginal people have made that connection, have we? Um, you can go, yeah. These are really beautiful um, cards. It's through a Catholic, Aboriginal Catholic um, organization. 
So are we willing to bring our collective sin of white supremacy, of complacency, of silence, are we willing to bring that to the cross of Jesus and to trust that God will, as Carol talks about, will recycle that into somehow, into life and goodness and collective freedom? The anger and lies and ego that fueled colonization and all the practices that went with it, that has not just disappeared. You don't commit genocide against a people group and remain unchanged. You don't stay neutral and quiet as children are taken from their parents and put in mission schools. You don't watch that happen and stay silent and not be changed and not be traumatized. Our own humanity is traumatized. All of our relationships are affected with self and God and others. The trauma is passed down from our ancestors, not only in our DNA, though it is, but also through pa family patterns of silence and violence and neglect. White people also need to heal from the traumas of colonization. Ubuntu. It's the word that comes out of the struggle against South Africa's apartheid, which means everyone's healing and liberation is all bound up together. So I'm going to close up. Um, Resma Manikam is a black man and um, therapist who has a book called My Grandmother's Hands, which I highly recommend. Lives in the United States. He does powerful work around racialized violence and trauma and helping people to heal on all spectrums of the experience. He talks about clean pain versus dirty pain. Clean pain is pain that mends. It's pain that actually builds our capacity to grow. He says it's the pain you experience when you have no idea what to do, when you're scared or worried about what might happen, and when you step forward into the unknown anyway with honesty and vulnerability. Paradoxically, only by walking into our pain or discomfort, so experiencing our pain, moving through it, and metabolizing it, only then can we grow. It's how the human body works. So that's for individuals, and that's also as a church, and as a family, and as a neighborhood, and as a nation. Dirty pain, on the other hand, is the pain of avoidance, blame, and denial. And this pain touches our most wounded parts, and we respond in violence. Or we run away emotionally or physically. Dirty pain does not heal. Dirty pain just continues to find new outlets. There is no quick fix to anything that we've talked about. But our nation is actually heading into a time of new, for some of us, new truth-telling. And we need Christians to actually be at the forefront of that. We have so much work to do, and it's, gonna, it's going to require us to acknowledge our pain and bring it to the cross, asking Jesus to turn our dirty pain of avoidance and blame and denial and violence and turn that into clean pain that still hurts, still painful, but we can change and we can grow and we can heal.
This message has been heavy. Some of us might have shut off. (laughs) Some of us might have lots of thoughts racing. Um, And I just want to bring us back to our bodies. I'm just going to take a moment. This is actually from Resma's book. And which I love that his book on racialized trauma is full of these body-based practices because we carry the trauma in our bodies and our bodies need to heal. We have to acknowledge our bodies in this. White bodies, black bodies, brown bodies. So just take a moment. You're welcome to close your eyes, but absolutely no need. You need to, whatever, you do, whatever feels safe. Notice yourself being held by the chair, your feet on the floor. Notice the outline of your skin. Notice how the air touches it or the seat touches it. Notice the slight pressure around your body. Let yourself be held by the firmer experience of the floor and the chair and the love of God. Can you sense hope in your body right now? Can you sense any hope? If so, where is that in your body? What does that feel like? What, what hope comes along with those feelings in your body? Can acknowledge that. Maybe it's the opportunity to heal, to learn something new, to be free from the burden of racialized trauma, start a new journey and do you feel any fear in your body right now and if so how does it feel where do you feel that feel that fear what worry or worries might accompany that fear are you afraid your life will be different now in ways that you can't predict Are you afraid of facing pain, of facing clean pain? And if your body feels both hopeful and afraid, congratulations. You're just where you need to be for what comes next. So you're welcome to kind of come back to the room and maybe wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers. And I'm just going to finish with something that I, I, I find very encouraging and beautiful and kind of like the next step. Um, unfortunately, we've been lied to. We've been told over and over that um, something is a blessing from God, which is actually the fruit of colonization. We'll talk more about that Wednesday night. Money, power, land acquisition. But Jesus actually made it clear what true blessing looks like, and, and he invites all of us into that. So I'm actually going to finish by reading out um, the Matthew 5 from the First Nations version. And I love that rather than using kingdom imagery, which can still feel like conquest and um, domination and building something, that it's actually about the blessings of the good road, walking creator's good road. And that invitation is for all of us. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to finish with that, and then I'll hand over to Carol. 
Creator's blessing rests on the poor, the ones with broken spirits. The good road from above is theirs to walk. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk a trail of tears, for he will wipe the tears from their eyes and comfort them. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk softly and in a humble manner. The earth, land, and sky will welcome them always and always be their home. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst for wrongs to be made right. They will eat and drink until they are full. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are merciful and kind to others. Their kindness will find its way back to them, full circle. Creator's blessing rests on the pure of heart. They are the ones who will see the great spirit. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who make peace. It will be said of them, they are the children of the great spirit. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are hunted down and mistreated for doing what is right, for they are walking the good road from above. Amen.
For the victims of this wretched war, and for the moon. 